EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. Welcome to the EU Futures Podcast, exploring the emerging future in Europe. I'm Olia Jordanian, an EU Futures Project Coordinator at BU Center for the Study of Europe. Today is March 5th, and I talk to Alberto Alemano, a Jean Monnet Professor of EU Law and Risk Regulation at HEC Paris and Global Clinic Professor at New York University. My name is Alberto Alemano. Um, I'm a European citizen. I happen to be born in Italy. I live in Spain and currently working in Paris, where I teach at the university. What is the future emerging in Europe? Regardless of what will happen as a, as a result, what we are experiencing these days will go down in history as the first time in which European integration is not only stopping, pausing before progressing again, but is stepping back. What the unfolding Brexit process reminds us is that the EU is no longer an irreversible project. And this is new. It is new for my generation. It is new also for the previous generation who witnessed uh, the reconstruction of Europe after Second World War. War. So the values we cherish the most seem to be a challenge as a result of the process uh, that is currently uh, putting at stake the future of Europe. Yet, contrary to what many observers uh, have noticed and wrote in recent uh, time, um, we probably are not necessarily uh, witnessing uh, the EU facing an existential uh, challenge. I think the EU proved more resilient uh, than is often credited to over the last uh, decade. If you think about the economic and financial crisis, how they forced the EU to rapidly advance on files very sensitive to national sovereignty, such as fiscal and banking supervision, well, this might happen again. So the question is, therefore, whether Brexit, uh, both as a process and as an outcome, might provide an opportunity for the EU 27 uh, by then to deepen and potentially identify a new direction. In the meantime, however, uh, the present for Europe is extremely uh, challenging because there are external uh, forces that somehow threaten its survival to the extent in which we are witnessing a geopolitical reordering in the follow-up of Trump's election as a president in the, in the United States, but also internal forces that are somehow challenging the uh, EU status quo. Uh, think about the many uh, political parties at the national level who have grown less enthusiastic about the EU, not to mention those political parties who have built their own consensus upon a pretty much anti-European uh, agenda. So this is the scenario we witnessed at the beginning of 2017. Uh, this is the scenario that uh, we, as European citizens, we will see when uh, the Dutch, uh, the French, and the German elections will, will occur this year by defining a new political uh, balance uh, within uh, the European Union. Any expectations that you have from these elections? I mean... What we have learned from uh, recent elections is that we know very little about what citizens, and in particular law information citizens, those who do not necessarily take the time to follow the news, will vote and what will express. So it's extremely difficult to make, and I think it would be even 
um, too ambitious uh, to try to second guess which could be the result of, of those elections. But it's pretty clear that in both France and in Germany, uh, we are going to uh, witness um, new political scenarios um, which will lead uh, to, um, to, 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 to situations or to electoral results that might surprise, that might surprise um, observers, political observers, and, and their citizens uh, themselves. But inevitably, the new political balance uh, among European countries will determine the future of Europe in a particular unprecedented moment in which we have to determine what, what's next. Do you see an increase in nationalism across Europe? And if so, um, do you see it as, as a threat to democracy in Europe? What Europe is experiencing today um, is a rising tide of both nationalistic and populist forces. I think those, these are two different sides, but very often they come uh, together. Uh, think about Herd Wilders, PVV in the Netherlands, Viktor Orban's Fidesz in Hungary, um, Miss Petri's Alternative for Deutschland in, in Germany, and partly also the Brexiteers themselves. They are all political forces that invariably claim to be the only ones to represent the people and the nation. So there are populist and nationalist uh, claims often coexist one to another. What makes populism um, particularly threatening for democracy in the European Union is its inherent claim of exclusivity in representing the people and certainly the nation. So populism is an exclusionary form of identity politics uh, and as such it denies pluralism. And in the absence of pluralism, it's very difficult to talk about democracy. So the idea, what is often called the political logic of, of populism, is to portray the idea of a single homogeneous and real people, um, which, of course, is, is a fantasy. We know that the urban elites of Berlin, Paris and Rome have actually much more in common among themselves than what they have in common with their neighbours. And their neighbors, perhaps low-skilled workers in those cities across Europe, have much more in common than with the urban elite. So that's the Europe of today. Uh, we always like to think about Europe as the sum of nation-states uh, with their own variation. But there's a lot of internal variation within countries uh, that today has to be taken in, into account. What makes particularly problematic populism is um, their attempt at closing the space for civil society. And in this particular historical moment, the EU needs more civil society, not, not less. So this is a further uh, threat, I would say, posed by populist forces to the future of, of, the European, of the European Union. Tell us a little bit more about formation of civil society at... Uh at the European level, how, how do you think this, this actually m might be possible, bringing this movement from national to supranational level? One of the major difficulties in building a European civil society has to do uh, with the lack of a European public sphere. So all debates happening at the European level tend to be reinterpreted and told through the national capital prisms. National politicians telling their own stories of what is happening, what is at stake in Brussels, between brackets, 
media portraying the European policy debates as national debates, just highlighting what is at stake from a national domestic point of view. And the lack of a public sphere prevents citizens to realize what is really at stake and why those public policies affect their, their lives and why they should actually know more about the procedures, the processes themselves, but also how their own interests are, are represented. That's the job of civil society organizations acting at the European level who often claim to represent specific diffuse interests like consumer protection, environmental protection, uh, social justice, but in reality struggle to uh, satisfy uh, or to justify their claim of representativeness to the extent they only represent some of national organizations that have their own positions made at the national level. So how you can potentially create deliberation within the very same organizations who claim to represent European consumers or the European environmental or the public interest of, of European citizens. That's a, a recurring a theme and, and problem in the history of European integrations since at least the early 2000 when the White Paper on Governance was published and the debate was triggered about how we can get civil society engaged with uh, processes, decision-making procedures that are felt and perceived very far away from the daily life of, of citizens. How do you see the role of citizens uh, in influencing processes at the European level? And how can they actually go beyond only participating in elections and make a difference in Europe? Today, there is a, a widespread, I would say, intensifying belief that citizens should be offered more opportunities to um, engage uh, with the European policy process. This is not a new realization. It has been there for at least 20 years' time. And this led the European Union to create many more avenues for participation for citizens. So the EU, in average, from an empirical standpoint, tends to be more participatory, at least on paper, and transparent and also accountable than one of an average individual member states of the Union. And this is something that is often not uh, understood, that is not widely uh, known, but the opportunities for citizens to engage are very significant. Paradoxically, they're also little used. So we have a lot of empirical evidence suggesting that petitions to the European Parliament, public consultations, European citizen initiatives, a very important form of transnational democracy, allowing citizens to do agenda setting, so asking the EU what's next, uh, defining which are the priorities for Europe. These are tools that are largely underused by the 500 million citizens. Why is this so? First of all, European citizens' literacy about the EU is very modest. 63% of citizens have little or no knowledge of their rights, of their opportunities within the European space. Second, the absence of a European public sphere condemns the European citizens to be exposed only to a particular understanding of what is actually happening in, in, in Europe. So there's a misinformation, not only lack of information, but misinformation. And then the dominant narrative keeps depicting the EU as a form of governance that is opaque, that is technocratic, um, and it is 
largely dominated by European and domestic civil servants working in close political networks and not necessarily responsive to the inputs that citizens may take the time to offer to them. So there's somehow cynicism in thinking how we can possibly engage. The overall feeling is that of powerlessness. Even if we do, we're not going to be heard because at the end of the day, the European decision-making process, like the federal government system in the United States, will be only listening certain interests over all the others. So we won't be able for civil societies to be heard and to mobilize with the same effectiveness and with the same impact uh, the very same instruments that are available for all actors, but usually are taken advantage of by only few actors, what I often call the usual suspects. Organize interest, including sometimes civil society organizations, but not necessarily representatives of the citizens. And this leads to what I often call the civic empowerment gap. So the fact that the political weight of every single individual in the policy process is not the same. And there is increasing awareness that this is the case. And this further discourage in a sort of uh, availability cascade effect, this uh, self fulfilling prophecy that in any event is not worth worth engaging into into the process. So how can we break this impasse? How to reverse this this trend? I had the opportunity to give a lot of thought to this idea over the last two years as I wanted to write a book entirely devoted to the role that citizens may play in today's uh, democracies. The title of the book captures the message and the main thesis that I developed. In, in this volume. Lobbying for change. Find your voice to create a better society. Citizens are also in the European Union offered the opportunity to vote, to run for office, which are both great opportunities we could further cultivate. But as I mentioned earlier, the EU is also offering them a further opportunity, what I often call lobbying, meaning there are avenues of participation, avenues of engaging that can reconnect the electors, the decision makers, and the voters. But those avenues have to be used. The good news is that European citizens are very well placed to take advantage of those avenues of participation because they are, in average, more and more um, educated. They have their own expertise. They have a quite sophisticated understanding of what is happening, at least a significant portion of the population has, and they have become quite deferential, they have become quite less deferential than in the past to power and to authority. So it is about the time they start uh, engaging with the policy process by, first of all, holding their decision makers accountable. So making sure that the decisions taken by the supposedly representatives are representatives of their interest between elections. So the beauty of lobbying is that it allows citizens to be connected to their decision makers, to their elected, between elections, not only at the moment in which they actually cast the, the ballot, but also in the moment in which, two years down the road, there will be a significant decision that policymakers have to take, or there is a priority that the citizens would like to bring to the attention of the policymaker. What I like about citizen lobbying is the fact that it allows to create a form of participation in the political process that is complementary to representative democracy rather than being antagonistic. 
So unlike what many populist forces today claim, we cannot realistically expect direct democracy, meaning allowing citizens to take decisions on a daily basis to deliver the best result for society. But we can certainly promote and expect public authorities to offer many more opportunities for actors across uh, the political and civil society spectrum to engage with the policymaker. And that's what I, I mean uh, by uh, citizen, citizen, citizen lobby. At the same time, there's a further value in allowing critical citizens to engage into the process. The fact that they're going to improve their literacy about the process, they're going to become more humble uh, about the difficulty of being a decision maker and to be a representative. They are going to uh, counter the undue influence exercised by all the other strong, usually economic, corporate interests that and therefore represent a form of antidote to the unequal representation of interest, and may also in the longer run induce ownership and therefore acceptance of the policy output and entailing greater participation by citizens in, in the policy process. And very final point, you can also, through lobbying, uh, mobilize your talents, your expertise, and therefore overcoming these forms of click activisms that are dominating the public discourse today. Online petition platform enabling citizens to click or to sign a particular petition, but not really to tap into the potential of those individuals. Citizen lobbying put at the center the creativity, the desire, the voice of the citizens by channeling them into forms of representative democracy, thus forcing the elected to, to listen, to engage, and to provide feedback in between elections, not only before the elections or, or right, right after. Can you tell, tell us a little bit about your book? Lobbying for Change, Find Your Voice to Create a Better Society, aims at providing a concrete operational answer to the question, how can I change society as a citizen? How can I connect with decision makers who are every single day called upon to take decisions about the quality of the air I breathe, about the quality of the water and food, the safety of the food I, I currently eat, and perhaps policies that will determine the quality of life of my own children. Lobbying for Change opens with a pretty sober analysis of the state of democracy today by focusing mainly on liberal democracies across the world and identifying a feeling of generalized powerlessness that characterizes our own society today. It identifies several drivers that explain why we feel so powerless. The fact that the distance between the elected and the electors has been growing over time, the fact that we no longer uh, spend uh, time together, we believe, uh, we, we, we increasingly see um, detachment by the electors lifestyle from many of the citizens they represent. Another driver identified in, in the book explaining the feeling of powerlessness has to do with education, the fact that our educational model is not necessarily addressing the demand of our new generations to be ready uh, not only 
to learn the skills to uh, gain a job that would be the job for all our life, but actually to learn uh, skills and uh, tools that will enable us to uh, understand and gain um, a better uh, understanding of, 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 of reality, therefore being flexible to uh, embrace different jobs during our life. We are moving from a situation of one job per life to a situation of 10 jobs for life in, in liberal democracy. So we need to, to prepare. But the educational system is not necessarily helping us um, to do so. The second part of the book focuses more on the solution. So once identified the problem, the feeling, the increasing feeling of powerlessness, it provides the solution, what I call uh, citizen lobbying. And finally, the third part provides an how-to guide for citizens uh, willing to engage at the local, regional, national, and even transnational level to mobilize their communities in order to fight their battles, what I call battles. Battles that might find their origin in uh, liberties, um, interests that are affected or that are at stake by the policy process, and translating those needs into a 10-step process that citizens might follow to set up their campaigns, from how to pick your battle, how to do your homework, how to identify your allies and enemies through a stakeholder mapping, all the way to building coalitions and setting up an advocacy strategy and then uh, communicating about it before finally preparing the meeting, uh, the uh, final uh, point of a successful campaign, the meeting with the decision makers. And finally, making sure that there will be a follow-up to that particular meeting and there will be monitoring also embedded into the process. The beauty, I think, of the book is that it really provides a quite original approach to the way in which citizens can interact uh, with public authorities, with governments at the different level uh, of government. It can be very local, it can be even just your, your, the area of the city in which you live. It can be the city itself, itself. it can be a particular region, uh, area, but it can also be much larger and therefore affects their, their citizens. So it's a ready-made uh, recipe for becoming a successful uh, critical citizen, ready to engage uh, with public authorities and uh, uh, potentially change for better uh, the society in which you live. And what's your vision of Europe? What kind of future would you like to see in Europe? Well, my expectations for Europe future are definitely uh, more ambitious and optimistic than those that have been recently sketched out uh, by the European Commission with the publication of the white paper on the future of Europe. In that document, the European Commission identifies five major scenarios that largely capture on the one side the status quo, the possibility of also making a step back by narrowing the focus of European integration to the internal market, to more, slightly more ambitious scenarios in which a nucleus of European countries might go further in integration. What is particularly disappointing in the white paper on the future of Europe is the lack of a preference made by the European Commission on one of those scenarios. The scenarios are extremely uh, vague, at the same time written with an academic pen, therefore difficult to understand for 
the public. And this is somehow paradoxical because the limited ambition of this document has been justified by the Commission itself as an opportunity given to the public to comment upon the document. But the document is not accessible to the many. A large majority of European countries today belong not only to the European Union per se, but they also belong to the Eurozone and to the Schengen area. And these countries are around 20 in total, in average, 19 and, and 22. So those countries are expected today to make a further uh, step. Uh, this is required by the size and scale of the challenges facing Europe. Think about the migration um, situation that occurred, that has been unfolding over the last two years. Think about the potential external threats represented by a new geopolitical order in which the United States could historically no longer be supportive of the European integration process. Only these two challenges, uh, which are just few out of the many, should justify a fuite en avant, as we say in French, an acceleration in the integration process. Not necessarily to attain the federalistic ideal of the United States of Europe, which by now seem more and more politically unfeasible but to certainly deepen areas of cooperation in which only the integration of those countries might provide satisfactory answer uh, to uh, the problem faced by the European Union. And finally, what I expect by the EU is not to do everything by themselves. We need to reinvent the space between European citizens and the European institutional apparatus. We need to make sure that the European citizens will be able to discuss with their own governments at the national level, to make their voice heard and to finally pressurize those countries to be more creative, to be bolder when it comes to negotiate the future of Europe by not looking only at the national interest, but looking at what we always identify as the European interest. And the European interest is not the result of the sum of national interests, it's significantly uh, a broader concept that should go well beyond the sum of the national interest. The good news is that there are signs suggesting that something is happening within the European civil society. There are signs suggesting that at least two generations of Europeans are becoming increasingly aware that their lifestyle, the values that have been driven and enlightening their lives are threatened today. This is not so dissimilar from what many Americans feel. A feel of this is the time to engage on the policy process level because it is absolutely worth it, it is absolutely necessary, it is almost a moral duty for us, notably citizens who had the possibility to take full advantage of 28 countries instead of one, not only to look for a job or to study, but also to find a partner, also to travel, also to think the world with broader eyes. The EU still represents the most successful form of European integration, of socio-economic integration in, in the world, the largest donor when it comes to development aid. It is a point of reference for the governments of Europe. So we have to think how European citizens can not only become increasingly aware what is happening, but how they can channel their energy into signals that can be listened, that can be acted upon by the decision makers.
the 60th anniversary of the Treaty of Rome represents a one-in-a-time generation opportunity to show up in Rome and to defend what the EU has created in a significantly a short period of time. In only 60 years, the European Union has achieved what a federation of states, including the United States, have only achieved in more than two centuries. When we look at the level of integration existing, despite the significant heterogeneity existing among countries, language, cultural diversity, which often represent the major obstacle to make this mobility often. There are two major uh, points that are worth considering when looking into the future of Europe. The fact that we often focus and measure the success of European integration by looking at what we call the intra-community uh, mobility. So how many European citizens have left their country to live in another country by thus showing to take full advantage of the EU? This number is 8 million of citizens, 3% of the population. But this number hides, and I often define it as the tip of an iceberg, that is visible above the sea level. But when we look below the sea level, we see this huge mass of people which represent 50% of the European citizens who on a daily basis are exposed to the European Union because they travel, because they have family in another country, because they are exposed uh, by the context in which the socioeconomic business context in which they live to other European countries. This is the future I would like to see for uh, the new generations for my own daughters in the future, seeing the European Union not only as a geographical space, but also a mental space in, can, in, in which they can find their own life and potentially have a positive effect, an inspiring effect for many other regions of the world who didn't have the chance to go through a long-standing period of peace and prosperity like the European Union. Nicholas Luhmann considers that keeping open possibilities of future choice is what makes democracy special. How do you see the role of choice in democracy? What the German sociologists meant by that is the ability of citizens to determine their own future. It is no question democracy's mission to offer, guarantee and even promote citizens' engagement within the democratic process. Unfortunately, the practice of political representation as we all experience, seems to disprove uh, such a claim. Citizens' voice is whispered when compared with the loud voice of corporate and other organized interest into the process. Martin Gillens of Princeton University recently confirmed this, this conclusion with compelling evidence suggesting that the opinions of the bottom 90% of income earners in America have statistically no significant impact. The situation is not dissimilar in the European Union. The result of this is that the preference of economic elite, business interest, and people who can afford lobbyists, and there are many, more and more, have far more independent impact upon policy change than the preferences of average citizens do. There are some other studies demonstrating that the large majority of the population, in particular those on lower incomes, are excluded. Uh, from the political systems. Their opinions are systematically excluded, not taken into account, they are ignored, but the preference of tiny segments of the richest have overwhelming influence. The Oxfam report from 2015 and 16 confirms that 58 individuals owns 50% of the global wealth. 
And this failure of democracy to channel individual input is therefore worrisome because it's pretty clear that we cannot counter inequalities if we don't allow individuals to feel in control of the political system determining the quality of their life. And this prompts, generates a feeling of powerlessness in the population and also contributes to render culturally homeless significant parts of the population who appear to be lost. They don't identify them anymore into the dominant culture of that particular region, of that particular country, and feel somehow prone to going to the extremes because there are calls for representation by populist forces. Today, around one-fourth of the European population is economically at risk or will be economic at risk in 20 years' time because of the geopolitical and the economic challenges faced by the European Union. Yet this reality has not been sufficient uh, for the European Commission to push for amb a more ambitious roadmap when drawing the white paper uh, discussing the future of, of Europe. And I think in these circumstances, citizens, to go back to uh, Nicholas Luhmann questions, must claim and expect public authorities, starting from their own governments, to be listened when it comes to defining their own future in the future setting of a European Union that does not necessarily the ambition to define and to establish a European polity. I don't think this is going to happen. But those who already feel part of that European polity should have the chance to also have a say into the process. Thank you so much. Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University, funded by a Getting to Know Europe grant from the European Commission delegation in Washington, D.C.